Hello and welcome to World War II Nation podcast with myself, Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Ross Corbett. In our very first episode, we'll be speaking with renowned British historian Anthony Beaver about the chaotic and brutal final chapter in the history of the Third Reich, the downfall of Berlin in April to May 1945. Anthony, thanks for joining us today. Um, Berlin, Hitler's capital from 1933 to 45, the obvious target of Soviet Russia's vengeance. Um, but was revenge Stalin's only motivation behind capturing Berlin for the British and Americans did? Or were there other reasons behind this also? Well, there were two reasons. Uh, one was um, the, the question, whole question of prestige, having suffered the most in the Second World War from German aggression and also the fact of having devoted the greatest number of casualties in the war against Germany, uh, Stalin was determined to have the prestige of capturing Berlin itself. There was always a, a traditional um, Russian, not just Soviet, uh, attitude towards the capture, capture of an enemy capital. Uh, so from that point of view, it was seen as um, very, uh, very important. Uh, but it also, the other one was the desperation to... Um, seize the any of the uranium, um, which, funny enough, Russia was very short of and had virtually none. Uh, but also the scientists and any of the information they could from the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in the southwest of Berlin in Dahlem. And in fact, uh, Beria brought in um, numerous regiments of uh, NKVD rifle uh, divisions uh, so as to seal off the whole area. And it was actually the reason why Stalin was uh, desperate to surround the city um, in his plan of attack, so that there was no chance of the Americans breaking through, because the Americans could easily have got to Berlin first uh, from the bridgehead over the River Elbe. Obviously, Hitler had designated Berlin a fortress back in February. What sort of preparations have been put in place for its defence? Uh, very little, because, of course, the at that stage, because, of course, from a Nazi point of view, that implied defeatism. Um, and this is why the Nazis were always very, very low, slow in, the, uh, in their preparations, because they could not admit that they were ever going to uh, retreat all the way back to Berlin. So the real um, defences were established, really, on the um, Cielo Heights above um, the Oder, and um, on further south, facing um, Marshal Konya's forces. In terms of the, you know, the quality of men, the numbers available to them, and the material left to the German army, was there much left that could be mustered to garrison the fortress? Um, for Berlin itself, there was a, a, a great mixture. There was a mixture of Hitler Youth and Volkssturm, but also some um, SS um, elements, which were quite powerful. There were the remains of the Nordland, SS Nordland Division, mainly of Scandinavian volunteers for the SS, part of the Netherlands. Um, there was even um, a small battalion of Frenchmen who made it through to the um, city, so, and they were the ones who were the final defenders, if you like, of the Reich Chancellery. It was one of the great ironies that, uh, that uh, Berlin was being defended uh, by, basically, um, SS troops from different, different nations. Um, and there were some uh, remnants of some of the heavy SS Panzer um, battalions, which actually had the Tiger tanks. So um, it was it was a tremendous mixture of um, the almost useless in the form of some of the Volkswagen, which were 
um, consisted of very old men or very young boys, uh, some of the fanatical Hitler youth with uh, Panzerfaust ready to attack Russian tanks, and, um, and, 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 and regular troops. What sort of go- uh, role did Joseph Goebbels, obviously he was Goalleiter of uh, Berlin, and I, the way I read it is that the Volkssturm basically fell under the Goalleiter's control, or, or to some extent, is that right? Yes, it was. I mean, the Volkssturm was basically funded by Goebbels, um, but at the same time, it came under the control of the Nazi party. This was partly because um, there was a year never since the uh, attempt on Hitler's life was a determination by the Nazi party um, to keep control of, of some parts of the defences. And, of course, this caused total chaos. I mean, the local, um, not just in Berlin, but elsewhere, um, the local Nazi chiefs would uh, set up where defence lines be without any reference to the army. Um, one thing that's always, always struck me is the sheer numerical scale of, sort of the, the Russian Red Army, the men and material stacked up against the Germans during this final battle, I think it's reading your books from like 2.5 million men, 6,000 armoured vehicles, 40,000 guns. Why did so many of these Germans, boys and men continue to fight when it was clearly the game was up? The sense of desperation, of the knowledge of revenge and what had already happened in East Prussia and what was liable to happen in Berlin and in Brandenburg, um, meant that many felt they had no choice but to go down fighting. Um, and these were often people who were encouraging their own families to commit suicide, um, saying that sort of, you know, life under the Russians will be so appalling that uh, you cannot possibly face the future. That was very much the sort of hard-aligned Nazis were going to take that attitude. Many others were longing to surrender, longing for the war to be over, um, but with the SS hanging anybody uh, who tried to escape and um, hanging them up from lampposts or trees with placards around their necks saying that uh, they were cowards and traitors and all the rest of it. Um, it, was, it was very hard. Um, there were a number of uh, school teachers here in um, Berlin who uh, advised their classes to um, avoid, if they all could, and to try and hide and avoid service with the Hitler youth. Um, because they knew that they, that would be sending them to their death. But um, that actually was very brave on the part of the teachers because they were likely to be killed themselves. So there was a tremendous um, variety. One cannot, cannot generalize at all um, in these cases between you know, the fanatical on one extreme and um, all of the others desperate to hide. I mean, there was, some, there was something like there were well, already well over 20,000 um, deserters uh, hiding in and around Berlin, mainly in the allotments and the little cabins which people constructed on their allotments and so forth. Presumably, um, the Red Army obviously had learnt a lot of lessons from in the art of sort of street fighting, city fighting during the Battle of Stalingrad two years earlier. Um, I think Chukov even coined the phrase, that, you know, the Stalingrad Academy of Street Fighting. Um, what sort of tactics did its commanders then presumably employ, you know, Konov and Zhukov, in the taking of German's capital? What one has to remember, of course, is that the street fighting in Stalingrad and street fighting in Berlin may have had certain similarities, but in, in Stalingrad, the Soviet troops, of course, have been the defenders. Mm. In Berlin, they were the attackers. And, uh, in fact, um, all of the lessons which they'd learned in Stalingrad were almost irrelevant when it came to Berlin when they were trying to advance with tanks and uh, infantry down streets and trying to clear houses and so forth. 
um, they they learnt, but they learnt a bit slowly. I mean, to begin with, the tanks just trundled down the centre of the street and were um, quite easily victims to the Panzerfaust fired from cellars or sometimes from rooftops or windows. Um, then they piled machine gunners, submachine gunners, onto the tanks um, to fire at every single window as the tank advanced. But this did often very little good, um, because quite often the tanks couldn't even tra traverse their turrets with so many people clinging to the outside of the tank. And they even tried putting uh, wire-sprung mattresses on the outside to act as a form of spaced armor to provoke the explosion of the hollow charge of the Panzerfaust uh, rocket-propelled grenade um, to explode so, and not to uh, penetrate the armor. So they tried a lot of these things, and then they were um, slightly more... Uh, effective when they had one tank on one side of the street uh, covering the other on the other side of the street and uh, progressing. But finally, they realized, as the Americans realized in, for example, their street fighting in Aachen, that the most effective way was simply to bring in heavy guns, um, really very heavy howitzers, and over open sights, i.e. shooting a point-blank range, uh, blast aside any barricades in the streets or even any uh, houses where... Um, defenders were suspected to be hiding. Um, and as they advanced, and this is where so many civilian casualties took place, you know, they would just chuck off and chuck grenades down into the cellars where the civilians were um, sheltering uh, from the fighting. So um, it was not surprisingly a fairly, a fairly messy attack. Um, the other problem was you have all of these different armies uh, fighting in towards the center of Berlin, supported by their own artillery, and in most cases by their own um, aviation army, um, bombing ahead of them. Well, of course, as they got closer to the centre, uh, not surprisingly, they were shelling and bombing each other. And uh, I would suspect, but could not possibly prove, um, that perhaps even a majority of um, Soviet casualties in the battle for Berlin were quite often caused um, by friendly fire. This point you just touched on, something I wanted to go on to, was obviously the, the, while the battle was raging around Berlin, um, what were conditions like for the two million or so civilians trapped within the city and carrying in the shelters and bunkers? The conditions for civilians were um, appalling in those circumstances. I mean, many of them, knowing what was about to happen, had obviously prepared containers of water and so forth. But the conditions in the cellars were really um, pretty squalid by then. And um, they realized that as soon as the Allied bombing, American bombing, had finished um, and the artillery shells started coming in, that they had to spend most of their time down in the um, air raid shelters or in the cellars. Now, in some cases, they'd knocked holes through so they might be able to escape to an adjoining one if the house above was hit and collapsed. And um, on the whole, they became, they used to refer to themselves as sort of cellar tribes. Um, some of them even acquired their own form of superstition, of, uh, of believing that if you did this or that, you would survive a, a direct hit or you would anyway survive the, the, the huge pressures which was um, created by the explosion of bombs and shells. Um, some of them believed that you, know, you should put a, a towel over your head and bend forward and keep your mouth open. That was certainly true, to keep your mouth open, um, so as to avoid uh, being completely deafened by the explosion. Um, and um, then, of course, when the fighting that stage had passed, 
then of course they were they are trapped and um, very vulnerable to the revenge of Soviet soldiers, which usually started with them um, coming in and then taking all their watches, and then a, a second wave uh, might well involve them selecting the women um, that they wanted and taking them off um, to rape them. So the figures I've read is, you know, absolutely shocking, over 100,000, well, depending on where you read, 100,000 women potentially in Berlin alone. Um, was it this... was even worse in other places like um, East Prussia. Was it purely down to uh, desire for revenge? or Revenge was an element, but in fact it's far too simplistic just to put it down to revenge. Um, the classic sort of feminist definition of rape is an act of violence, nothing to do with sex. Well, that, funny enough, was true in the first stage in, when, as they attacked East Prussia. There, it was just sheer statism, violence. Um, by the time they got to Berlin, though, it was a question of sexual opportunism. They were armed, the women, um, the women were totally vulnerable. Um, they could pick and choose as they wanted, and this is what they did. They went into those cellars and into the air raid shelters with their torches uh, and selected their victims and, um, and hauled them out. Uh, sometimes, you know, even kept them for several days as they were sort of raped one after another. Um, I think that it's quite interesting when one reads, uh, for example, there was a, uh, a Russian psychiatrist called Ivor Khan who did read a very interesting book, um, who I think quite rightly said that one of the problems had been the way that Soviet and Stalinist society particularly had tried to sort of desexualize Soviet society um, to the point of posters showing women workers, um, even the, the shape of the breasts were uh, camouflaged under um, dungarees. Um, everything was desexualized because all love, all affection and emotion had to be directed towards the party and i.e. therefore towards the glorious leader, um, Comrade Stalin. And this actually created, of course, a, a counter effect. And as Igor Khan pointed out, you know, this created what he described as a form of uh, barracks eroticism, uh, which was far worse than the worst form of sort of propaganda. So there was this repression which played one part, this sexual repression which played uh, one element of it. Another was that one has to remember how much these Red Army soldiers had been humiliated by their own leaders and their own um, commissars and political officers during the course of the war. Um, and as a result, when they were now the masters and in total control, um, they were going to basically sort of exert their power. I mean, if you like, it was sort of a form of the knock-on theory of oppression. Um, that is certainly what they did. They took it out, obviously, on the German women who were the most vulnerable and the easiest targets for them. With the city sort of completely encircled by the 20th, I think it was the 25th of April, um, were there ever any attempts to break out or any attempts to try and lift the siege from outside? Was that ever possible? No, it was never possible because the 9th Army, which had been defending the front, uh, defending the line of the uh, river, uh, Oda had been basically smashed and was uh, retreating in three different directions. But one of the largest ones, elements, um, was retreating into the Spreewald, uh, to the, the forest to the, um, to the south of Berlin. Um, and although Hitler was sending in cra or sending crazed orders over the radio, saying, you know, you must advance on the capital and smash the Russians from behind and all the rest of it, um, None of them were in a state, uh, none of these forces were in a state uh, to do anything to relieve Berlin. So this was pure fantasy on 
Hitler's part. Uh, and, of course, what um, their commanders um, were trying to do, like General Vick, um, was simply to spare his uh, uh, men from um, capture by the Soviets and therefore imprisonment in Siberia or in the Gulag um, and get them across the um, River Elbe uh, so they'd be taken prisoner by the Americans instead. And this is therefore what they were all trying to do. None of them were really withdrawing into Berlin. The only ones who did was that uh, battalion of French SS uh, from the Charlemagne um, who actually made their way into Berlin by threading their way through German, uh, through Russian um, outposts. Mm. Um, I remember reading that there was an, a few att escape attempts from the Reich Chancery, I think, um, via the Kaiserhof U-Bahn station. Did many of the Nazis try to flee? Were they ever successful? And what happened to these sort of uh, fleeing underground? Did any of them actually make it through? Some Nazis managed to, um, to get away, that's certainly true. Um, most, on the whole, tended to commit suicide. Um, I mean, whether they were caught um, in the breakout, um, um, Axman managed to escape, um, the head of the, after Axman, who was the head of the Hitler Youth, um, and survived afterwards. Um, Bormann died during the breakout. Um, there were a number who were, um, who were killed in that particular way, and of course then there were many others who committed suicide, either in the Reichschancellery, um, Bergdorf and, uh, and, and others. Um, and of course Goebbels and his wife, and having murdered all of their children, uh, because they felt that uh, the, the post-war world would uh, be totally unbearable to live in. And um, um, basically there, there was an attempt to break out, uh, partly from other civilians, but a large group from the Reichschancellery trying to get across the Weidersammer Bridge, um, but they were sort of fought back. Um, they were supported by one or two Tiger tanks um, and by some of the SS who'd been still fighting around the uh, Reichschancellery. And there was another attempt um, to break out um, on the west side of um, Berlin, um, which also led to an incredible massacre, but a few obviously still managed to get through. One of the places we visited while we were in Berlin was the, I think, hopefully saying this right, the Humboldtine uh, Flag Tower. Obviously, three colossal buildings were employed in the defence in the end. So what sort of role did they actually have to play in that final battle? Well, the Humboldtine was sort of bypassed and then um, taken later. Um, the key one, in a way, was the, um, um, the, the, the zoo bunker, the one in the Tiergarten, um, which was huge, which had... Um, could take up to about 15,000 civilians um, in, in the sort of shelter downstairs. But on the roof, it had not only 88mm guns, but, I mean, it had much heavier anti-aircraft guns, which could also be used. And they were used in the uh, attack on the um, Reichstag, uh, where they had to attack across the sort of Ko old Koenigsplatz. Um, the Russian troops were suddenly found themselves being shot at from the rear uh, by these anti-aircraft, heavy anti-aircraft guns on the on the top of the zoo bunker, um, but in the end, um, in the question of the zoo bunker, they didn't actually assault it. Um, they were able to, um, after the uh, commander committed suicide, um, it was rather a description of him with his mistress having committed suicide, um, and um, others sort of you know slept out and uh, uh, ran away, and then gradually you know the um, Red Army troops were able to occupy it, but without any losing any men in the process. Probably an odd question, and it's just something that I 
having read about it, it was intrigued to know a little bit more. Um, Hitler's personal bodyguards, the Liebenstaden SS division, obviously I, thought, I was under the impression that they were always meant to be there to protect him and, and his, uh, his officers, etc. But they weren't actually present during the final battle, were they? No. They were down... They'd been down in Hungary with the six... Um, with the 6th SS Panzer Army. Um, no, they were a fighting um, SS Panzer Division. Um, there were a number who were still there. Um, people get slightly confused about the whole idea of the different bodyguards that Hitler had in that mm. sense. Um, in Berlin, it was the Watch Battalion, the Wacht Battalion of the, um, uh, the Großdeutschland Division, which was not actually an SS division. Um, people always assumed that it was. And they provided the, um, the for example, the, the guard in Berlin, and it was the battalion commanded by Otto Rehmer, um, who was the, which was the one which was used to suppress the uh, July plot in, um, on the 20th of July, 1944. Um, um, but there were some members from the uh, SS Leibstandarte uh, who were in the bunker. I mean, Rokus Misch, who we interviewed, um, he was the telephonist, like several of the others. You know, he'd been wounded badly, was not much good as a frontline soldier anymore, and so he was used as a telephonist in the in the um, in the bunker. Um, but basically, you no, know, the um, SS um, Leibstandarte Hafenfutter was was uh, serving down with the Sixth SS Panzer Army in, um, in in Hungary, and then in the, the retreat from Hungary. One of the things you just touched on a minute ago, which obviously I would love to speak to you about, was the, the fighting for the Reichstag, you know, the ultimate prize for the Russians. Um, it really summed up, I suppose, the barbarity and the, the fierce fighting of the city in just that one individual battle. Um, can you sort of walk us through that event? Well, the preparation to attack the Reichstag was uh, fairly complicated. Um, they, were coming in, they were coming in really from the, um, uh, from the north, northwest, um, and they captured, first of all, what they called as Himmler, referred to as Himmler's House, which actually was the um, Ministry of the Interior, um, which was up in the area um, in the bend of the River Spree, which was just to the northwest of the uh, Reichstag. And the commander of the Soviet battalion, which was to sort of lead the attack, um, I kept on sort of saying when his target of the Reichstag was pointing out to him, he said, hang on, there's a, there's a building in the way. Um, what he didn't realize was that building in the way was actually the Reichstag itself. Um, I mean, none of them had ever seen any pictures of the Reichstag, and they didn't really know what it was. Uh, they didn't realize what a solid, huge, massive building uh, it was. I mean, certainly solid enough to resist artillery fire. Um, and they had to attack across this sort of open space. Uh, which in fact had been flooded in places, because ironically, um, Speer, Albert Speer had started creating some of the tunnels underneath it uh, for his great building of Germania. Uh, but the water level had risen from the Spree, and as a result, there was sort of almost a water obstacle right across the sort of Königsplatz, which they had to negotiate. Um, they lost huge numbers of men uh, in the attack as they approached. Uh, it took them most of the day. But um, being fired at based from the Reichstag itself, and as I said, from the zoo bunker behind. Um, anyway, eventually they did manage to storm the building. The whole idea, and this was all on the 30th of April, the whole idea 
was to have the building captured by the 1st of May. So it could, take, it could be announced at the 1st of May celebrations, May Day celebrations in Moscow um, in the morning. And of course, there's a lot of, uh, in the sort of typical Soviet way, there was sort of a lot of uh, jiggery-pokery to try to pretend that really happened. Um, and um, the soldiers involved were all promised, and they knew perfectly well that whoever managed to get the hoist the flag above the Reichstag was going to receive uh, the gold uh, star of hero of the Soviet Union, the top Soviet decoration in the possible, which would mean, you know, um, an easy life and um, pension and all the rest of it for anybody who achieved that, as well as tremendous prestige. Um, and that's why so many of them were prepared to take such crazy risks. Um, anyway, they basically the attack consisted of a, once they managed to break their way into the building, um, it was absolute chaos, chaos on the inside. The building was defended largely by a lot of sailors who'd been flown in you know, in a Junkers, um, in the Junkers transport plane, which had crash-landed um, on the um, east-west axis only a, a couple of days before. Um, and they were used, along with Hitler Youth and a few SS and the whole mixture in the usual sort of uh, pick-and-mix um, defending force. Um, and they found themselves having to fight with against the uh, Soviet troops who were all armed, obviously, with grenades and submachine guns. Um, and the point was that sort of a group which had the flag ready to hoist was sort of trying to break through. It's a little bit like a sort of very violent rugby match, um, trying to sort of break away from the scrum and get to the roof and um, hoist the flag. Um, but the very famous photograph of the flag being hoisted above the Reichstag is, of course, a, um, a complete fake. Um, I mean, even, even though they claimed that it was hoisted before midnight, well, the photograph, of course, shows day daylight. Um, and um, they even had to touch up the, uh, the fake photograph or the posed photograph rather later uh, because, of course, the person holding up the flag had uh, looted watches on both arms. Um, and that, of course, was uh, rather um, undermined, undermined the, the glory of the moment. Um, so it, it was a very, very contrived thing. But the whole idea of choosing the Reichstag as the symbol um, was sort of rather typical of Stalin in a way. I mean, it was the biggest and, in a way, most famous building. But, of course, it hadn't been, it hadn't been used since 1933 and the Reichstag fire. Uh, following the surrender and final capitulation of the capital, I think it was on the 2nd of May, um, what actually happened to the garrison there? And, was there sort of any help given by the Soviet authorities to aid the civilians still trapped inside and restore the utilities and provide food? The um, Soviet authorities under General Bazarin, um, who was made sort of the commander of the city, um, this was again an old uh, Russian practice that the commander of the army who um, captured a city um, was made its sort of uh, commander and governor. Um, and his fifth shock army had been the first into the city, so that was why the honour was given to him. But Berzarin was greatly admired and actually rather liked by most of the um, German population because he started providing food very rapidly. Uh, interestingly, this was at a time when actually there was terrible famine in parts of the Soviet Union, in Kazakhstan and places like that. Um, and here they were sort of pouring food into, um, into the capital. Um, the idea being that they would sort of, you know, win over um, the Germans to uh, communist rule and so forth in the future. 
Um, but of course, that was rather undermined by the fact of uh, the raping and the looting, um, including even those of uh, the families of German communists who came out to uh, welcome the Russian troops. Um, then found themselves being treated as um, spies because the, uh, the the killing question always was uh, why weren't you with the partisans? Um, the fact that there weren't any partisans in Germany operating against the Nazis um, was something which um, Soviet soldiers simply could not understand uh, because they'd been told that the working class would be with us. Um, but anyway, um, Belzarin, as I say, provided uh, uh, the food and was distributing it. Um, and when he was killed in a, um, a motor accident not long afterwards, um, many of the Germans convinced themselves that somehow he'd been sort of murdered by the NKVD, that basically he'd been on their side. Obviously, there were a lot of troops that uh, survived, you know, that were fighting, they'd been fighting in Berlin. Um, what happened to them at the end? They were marched off, even those who just had some form of uniform, for example, even members of the fire brigade or um, of the um, German railways, uh, the Heisbahn, um, just because they were in uniform, they were actually counted as troops um, and um, marched off out of the city. Um, mainly of them were uh, locked up in former concentration camps like Oranienbaum, Sachsenhausen and so forth. Um, and um, even Auschwitz was um, used uh, as a holding camp for uh, German prisoners. And um, then a certain percentage were marched off to the Soviet Union because um, the promise of Stalin was that you know, no prisoners would be released um, until the destruction and damage caused to the Soviet Union by the German invasion had been repaired. So uh, many of them, in fact, there were huge numbers who, of course, died. Um, and like most of the uh, prisoners of war, what was interesting was the survival rate. Um, the survival rate amongst uh, generals was always very, very high because, ironically, um, the um, Soviets uh, looked after the generals very, very well. But the ordinary soldiers who were sent to work as what were called Stalin's horses um, in logging camps or in um, labor camps of one form or another. Um, they were the ones who always died, or, um, and only about sort of 5% of them survived to come back, while um, the more senior ones um, tended to survive much better. Uh, but in the end, um, quite a lot were released in about 1949, uh, but the majority uh, didn't return, weren't allowed to return to Germany um, until 1954, and some even not until 1955. During this period, you sort of already touched on it earlier. Was you know there was a whole wave of suicides within the capital, and obviously, I guess within Germany as a whole. Um, was it purely down to fear of retribution by the Red Army? You know, fueled by Goebbels' propaganda. Was this the main reason behind this? There were many who did it out of probably guilt, knowing that they were um, in line for uh, punishment of some form or another. There were those who did it out of ideology, believing that as Nazis, that they should sort of, you know, do the same as the Fuhrer, or that uh, um, life in a democratic uh, uh, or a, uh, a post-Nazi society would be so appalling that they couldn't possibly um, deal with it. 
Um, there were, of course, I think probably perhaps the majority of the suicides uh, were often tended to be women um, who could not face either the idea of being raped or the idea of being raped yet again, because I mean, in most cases it was a question of mass rape and um, on, a, on a repeated basis. Um, or it was a question of, you know, whole families committing suicide together. Um, and um, sometimes, you know, the, the children being hanged and then the... the then the sort of father killing himself last. Um, that, that uh, you know, the, the figures of uh, uh, an estimate of 10,000 is, of course, a very round figure. Um, one's always got to be very careful of, about round figures uh, for Berlin. But overall, it's very, very hard to, it's very hard to tell. Um, one final question, sort of going backwards almost in a way. Um, something I never knew before was that during the Battle of Berlin, Obviously, with the Tempelhof Airport falling and coming within range of the Russian guns, that the that Hitler actually ordered. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. The former Strasse de 17 Uni, um, that main strip, actually to be converted into an air landing strip. Was it actually ever physically employed in that capacity, though? Well, yes, it was. But I mean, the um, I mentioned the the sailors who were flown in, flown mm. in from um, Kiel, from the from the north. Um, landed were landed there in um, with Junkers 52. They took down the um, they took down the uh, street lamps on either side, um, and it was used as a landing strip. And of course, it was also there that Hannah Reich, the great um, uh, German Nazi aviatrix, um, landed there with uh, Ritter von Geim, who was the uh, Hitler wanted to appoint as the new head of the Luftwaffe after he'd uh, sacked. Uh, Goering uh, for his uh, what he regarded as his treason. Um, I mean, they landed in a light aircraft, which actually, even though they'd been badly wounded um, and hit by fire as they came in, and Hannah uh, uh, managed to actually to uh, land the aircraft. So that, that it was used on um, on on, on, um, on, a, on a few occasions. Um, I don't know exactly how many aircraft uh, did land there, but I, I think it's only sort of about three or four, perhaps. A huge thank you to Anthony for speaking with us today. A really interesting insight into those turbulent final few weeks and days in Hitler's capital. Also a big thank you to you for listening. We hope you found it of interest and enjoyed the new format it's come in. Um, we'll be giving away a copy of Anthony's book, Berlin the Downfall 1945, later this week. The details of which are to follow on our website, www.worldwar2nation.com. Looking ahead to our next podcast, we'll be speaking with World War II historian James Holland, about his book, The War in the West, Germany Ascendant, 1939-1941. It's the first volume in his new trilogy, examining the history of the Second World War.